Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sarah Wilson, and this is Wild a show where we talk with the biggest minds in the world about the ideas that can help us love and save our one wild and precious life together on this planet. Happy New Year, everyone. I hope that the start to the new year to 2023 is going well. We here at Wild are taking a bit of a summer break, but I know many of you are doing road trips or looking for ways to tune out of too much family time and perhaps looking for some inspiration as the year gets started. So I'm running some of my favorite episodes from earlier seasons of Wild. One of my very first guests was my friend David Pocock, one of the world's most successful sportsmen, previously best known as captain of the Wallabies. We spoke for this episode in the aftermath of his leaving football in early 2021 to devote himself to climate action, which was massive at the time. Of course, since then, and it all happened pretty fast, David decided that the best way to shift the climate dial was to go upriver and be in Parliament. And so he ran as an independent for the Australian Senate and won. He is now one of only two ACT senators and in his first few months has made massive impacts, been pivotal in the new ICAC bill. Along with fellow Senator and fan Jackie Lambie, he provided the numbers to Labor to get their climate bill passed. He has spoken out to restore the rights of territories to legislate on euthanasia and much more. And word in the corridors of Parliament is that this introvert is one of the most sought-out politicians in the House. I know many Australians are intrigued by David Pocock, the power he wields with the balance of power in the Senate and all the anomalies at play, the tough man, boofheady optics, his incredibly gentle and considered way of speaking, which I reference in our chat, but then the powerful leadership he's been now recognised for. Former independent Rob Oatshot said recently of David, you can be a strong man in politics without having to be a boofhead, referring to the fact that he is indeed a strong man, but a rare non-boofhead one, breaking down at least three stereotypes right there. And so I thought many of you here would like to learn a little bit more about this extraordinary human and to hear his thinking that was sort of going on not long before making such a big leap into politics. I hope you enjoy this chat that was recorded early in 2021. You might know David for one of two reasons. First, perhaps for being a weapon on the rugby field, the 79th captain of the Wallabies and the only Australian player to be included in World Rugby's Team of the Decade. Or, the second option, for being a rugby player and the darling of sports media who also speaks out on race, refused to marry his best mate Emma until marriage equality laws passed in this country, and for being arrested for chaining himself to a digger in a coal mine protest, and who at the end of 2020 shocked the world by announcing he was leaving sport at the height of his career to devote his energies to the environment. I know him for this second reason. I hadn't actually had a chance to catch up with him since he made his big decision, so I figured this podcast might be a really great forum for it. In this chat, we, we cover quite a bunch of hard questions. Eating meat for the planet, being a grown-up, feminism, and getting comfortable with being weird and different. Now, when David and I start talking, and I should warn you, we don't tend to draw breath and it's been known to freak other people out. I've set aside a couple of hours, so all, all good. The other thing I'll say, Dave is one of the most considered thinkers I've ever met. He never throws out a line without reflecting fully. 
the pauses in this podcast are quite long as a result, but Lindsay and I, the producer, we decided to leave them in and I invite you to find them as a as an almost pause for a reflection yourself as you listen to our conversation. I think it's also worth sharing with you because it's such a commendable and very likeable thing and totally rare. He prepped for days before our interview and followed up with me several times afterwards to clarify some of his answers and to share some reading sources you might all like. So you'll find them attached to the show notes. I started by asking Dave to remind me how our friendship first started. I came across you because you struck me as incredibly wild, but you might need to help me out here. How did we actually first meet? Do you remember? I can't actually remember. We, my partner Emma and I had used your cookbooks for a while and kind of followed what you were doing and... I think it was Instagram. I think it was I think it was Instagram at first and then and then we arranged to have a coffee. Um and you and I just locked heads and talked philosophy and Jungian theory. <laughs> yeah, I, I often get accused of being intense and I think I had met my match in intensity, so <laughs> We've had a few good chats. We have, and we've shared some um, intense reads, long reads and philosophy, philosophical books um, over the years. And, in fact, I might even get that list together and share it on my blog post so people can can tap into what we've been reading and sharing notes on. But um, thank you so much for joining me at a really important juncture in your life. And I want to speak specifically about your most recent leap in which you essentially gave up on footy, not because there was a scandal, not because of injury and and not because you'd sort of reached your peak and you were going downhill. In fact, quite the opposite, most commentators would say. You decided to leave because you wanted to focus on um, activism and your work in the environment and, and in climate change. That is a huge leap to make and very few people in your position have done it. David, can you just explain what went through your head to help you make that decision, to take that really bold leap into the unknown and into the wild? I guess you know, leaving rugby to focus on conservation or, or climate change work is really an easier and less nuanced way of, I guess, talking about making a really big life decision and what, as humans, that that takes. And for me, it was a really tough decision. And, you know, like all these big decisions, I guess, something that you really grapple with. And, you know, we've got so many competing voices and desires, and it's really sifting through that and trying to actually listen to that part of ourselves that we know ultimately we have to listen to, that we're, we're accountable to in some way. And, you know, I think all of us know that, that somewhere deep inside us we have that voice that knows what's right for us. And I had sensed that it was, it was time to, to move on. I'd felt my energies shifting in a different direction. Um, but, you know, rugby and professional sport was also really the only thing I knew. I, I'd been... Um, playing professional rugby since I was 17. Uh, it was a huge part of my life and, you know, it had provided me with a whole bunch of things from, you know, the feeling of being part of a team and connected to something bigger than myself, you know, structure, goals, uh, and also you know, an ident- identity, you know, David, the, the rugby player, um, as well as, yeah, a good income, a sense of security, and, you know, you're also being told by our culture and, you know, even people close to me, some, you know, family saying, listen, just make hay while the sun shines, like make as much money as you can now because it won't last forever and then one day you can do all these other things that, you know, seem crazy to other people. Uh, you can go and focus on them. And it's a valid, it's a valid argument. I mean, growing up in a farming family where, Money was often a, a point of stress. It's something that's that's kind of weighed on me. Um, 
but yeah, ultimately got to the point where I decided, you know, it was, it was really time to actually step out and, uh, was timing and the urgency of the climate movement, something that played on you? The urgency is certainly there. And, you know, that, that's, that's, I think things are only going to get more urgent the way that we're, we're heading, but I guess it was, it was more, a a personal thing and, and knowing that I had to actually step out of that sort of um, comfort zone into something else. And, uh, you know, I'm still really figuring that out. Um, Maybe just share with us because I know that you, you say you're still figuring it out, but from what I know of what you and Emma are em- embarking on, I mean, you're about to head back to Zimbabwe to work on a really big project over there. Could you just give us a really quick overview of what that is? Sure. So we're trying to build a model of land management, which essentially brings together regenerative agriculture, conservation and community development. So working to build um, a more holistic model of land management where local people benefit from not only their land, but also from the wildlife that they live alongside and, and often don't don't benefit from they they bear the costs of living next to things like elephant and and um lion and all these things that are a real cost to them um yeah you know economically and also also socially yeah i mean it's kind of at the nexus of everything that's happening in the climate movement and it's particularly with second and third world countries it's a it's a really interesting project and i won't drill down into too much of it now because i know you're about to sort of embark on it and um, maybe we'll come back to, to that in, in a year's time and hear how it all went. I know that you do draw on a lot of philosophy and we share some of the, the, you know, the books and the philosophies that have influenced us into the climate movement. Um, what are some of the, the books that you drew on or even theories that you referenced as you made this really big dis- decision, this big leap into the unknown? <laughs> The work of James Hollis has been really important in my life. I was introduced to him, um, I don't know, probably almost almost a decade ago and I've, I've really found his work deeply challenging um, but also incredibly useful in trying to work out what it means to to live a life of, of, of meaning. Um, Is there a particular phraseology or approach that... Because he, he's written countless books, is there one particular hmm. notion that guided you? Well, I think there's been a, a number of things that have really challenged me to shift the way that I think and live. Um, one of one of the big ones was in 2013, 2014. I had back to back knee reconstructions and essentially sat on the sideline for two full years of. Um, of rugby, which, you know, when you have perspective is really not one of life's great challenges. You're relatively healthy, well looked after, still being paid, uh, still very privileged, all these things. But in that moment, you, your whole sense of um, identity and being able to contribute is really being shaken and I grew up in a fairly sort of Christian fundamentalist uh, home and and really had this idea of God sort of being, you know, in in a way some sort of vending machine where if you do the right things, good things happen to you. Yeah. And... One of one of the things that, that James Hollis' work really challenged me on was that we actually don't have a contract with the universe. Yeah, <laughs> things happen that are outside of our control, and really all we can do is make you know make the most of it. And um, you know, a, a wise old friend in Perth after my second um, injury you know, after a fairly long sort of rehab and all the rest, um, it happened again. And, and I was down in the dumps feeling pretty sorry for myself and he, and he kind of just squared me up in a way and said, mate, rather than just sitting there saying like, why me? Your question should really be what can I make of it? And 
for me, that was a that was a really big shift, and I guess uh, a bit of a turning point on the journey of of what James Hollis would really call growing up. Like finally, actually taking personal responsibility. You know, we as humans, there's always someone to blame, but the reality is is that we're the only consistent character in this kind of drama that we call our lives, and um, it's you know it's it's really up up to us to to find meaning and and uh, to live in a way that honors what what what's come into the world out of us. All right, so James Hollis, is there anyone else that guided you? Any other texts that you drew on? Philosophies, mantras. Well, one of the things I'd been reading earlier last year, where I was kind of really grappling with this decision and whether to sign on for another couple of years or, or call it quits was Rob Bell. And I really love, he's such a, he's such a great communicator. Um, and I, I really love some of the ideas he talks about and the way he kind of really grapples with, with meaning in life. And one of the things he said, which really struck a chord was you can leave when it feels like a graduation or you can hang in there and have to leave when it feels like a divorce. And <laughs> yeah, it kind of, it really resonated where it, it felt like this was stepping into something new, something unknown. And, you know, it's, it's that thing of, um, I guess, finding your own path, you know, Joseph Campbell talks about if you can see the path laid out in front of you, uh, you know it's not your path and your path is really every step you take and trying to trying to figure it out for yourself. And it really felt like the, the right time to take that step and, and yeah, try and find what's next and, and yeah. follow what, what's interesting. That one foot in front of the other approach, it's so simple, but it can be very, very comforting um, in a complex world. I've got to say, as somebody from the sidelines, and I'm going to try not to use footy, footy analogies and metaphors here, but, um, you know, I've observed you as somebody who's got this incredible potency. And as a man, a white man, who just personifies the ultimate sort of warrior physicality and mentality, I mean, in terms of anything that can emulate a wartime environment, I would say um, that rugby would be it. I mean, boxing is almost as physical, but it's very individual, this notion mm. of this kind of camaraderie. And for you then to do this flip and to actually turn your back on it and go, I'm going to use all of that potency, that white male Australian potency, and move it into the environmental movement, it's probably one of the most powerful things I've seen in that sort of influencer community in terms of people in the spotlight doing something really radical. I'm wondering if you've got any thoughts on why so few influencers and celebrities and people in the spotlight are doing this kind of thing, not maybe to the extent that you have, but who are willing to get wild, who are willing to take that leap and and voice up. I mean, do you feel the same way? Do you look around and go, where are the influencers speaking out on politics, the climate, on what matters? Mm. <sighs> From from the first half of your question, I guess I really don't see it as turning my back on rugby. Personally, I loved my my time in rugby, and, and you know, I, I couldn't have done anything else with the upbringing and, and and the the motivations as a young kid. I served that out as best I could, and got to the point where I realised I needed to move on to, to something else. So very much see that as a really important part of the journey, but realise that it's not actually, it wasn't serving me anymore in, in the way that it, it, it once had. In terms of taking a stand, uh, I mean, this is something that I've been really interested in and, and you know, I, th- I think, I, you know, I'm, I'm really grateful for, my upbringing and and the way it kind of got me curious about social change uh you know growing up in that christian environment it something about it just didn't sit right with me and and i kind of went on this almost as a you know in my late teens i left home at 17 moved across the country and you get to this point where you're like okay well i believe all this stuff but 
that's just what my family believes. Like, what do I what do I actually believe? What what resonates with me? What what do I see as as um, important or, or true to me? And so I kind of went down this rabbit hole of of reading from you know the early Christians, liberation theology, and then that really got me onto like Gandhi, Martin Luther King, Dorothy Day, Desmond Tutu, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, all these people who we really hold up on a pedestal and say, "Wow, look at these." amazing people and what they did. But the thing that really stood out for me is, is the more you read both what they'd written, but also books about them, the more you realized, hang on, like these are really ordinary, flawed, sometimes deeply flawed humans like me and you, and Mm -hmm. they experience fear and all the other things that we do, yet they acted courageously in the face of their fears and you know, I really think it comes down to moral courage and, I don't know, finding something inside you that says this, this, is, this is what I believe in and I'm going to actually take a stand. And I think it's a really interesting and very compassionate point that you make is that these change makers that we revere, they were ordinary, but what distinguishes them is that they tapped into their moral compass and then that guided them and they they took the leap, they took the steps that were, were required. But, David, I mean, what would you say to people who might be in the public eye listening to this or who have some sort of influence, they may even just have an influence within their family or in their office environment, that can get them to that point of moral courage because the world is needing so much of it right now. You've taken the leap, you've, you've, you've read the text, you've been incredibly intense about it, you know, what could you actually offer as some mindset sort of switching? One of the things I thought thought about a lot as a younger adult was these people that we've just talked about and the social movements they were involved in, um, whether it was, you know, the fight against slavery, civil rights, uh, against apartheid, all these things. I certainly like to think, and I think most people would like to think that they would have been right there, you know, <laughs> fighting against slavery, wanting civil rights, um, saying apartheid was, a, was an awful uh, thing to do. Uh, yet history shows us that most people were pretty neutral, kind of just got on with their lives, Um, maybe didn't agree with it, but certainly weren't out there. It was a very small percentage of the population that were actually active. And one of my heroes is Desmond Tutu. And, you know, with with, he's he's just such a wise, humorous old guy. And, And he talks about how if you're neutral in a situation of injustice, You've chosen the side of the oppressor and kind of, you know, as only Desmond Tutu can, he gives this example of if an elephant's got its foot on the, the tail of a mouse and you say to the mouse, oh, I'm, I'm neutral, the mouse is not going to appreciate your neutrality. <laughs> so, you know, I think it's, it's actually thinking about the issues that we face, um, you know, climate change and, and the, the biodiversity crisis are the biggest issues I think Homo sapiens have ever faced. And, you know, it's not just us that's at risk, it's millions of species. And are we willing to actually have the, have the courage to act um, and potentially at an expense to ourselves? But really, uh, you know, I think there is so much meaning to be found in being part of what someone like Joanna Macy calls the great turning where we all know things are, things are bad. Yeah. (laughs) Things have to change and we need more people saying, okay, things have to change and I'm going to be part of it. And, you know, one person isn't going to change the world, but when we have more and more people saying, right, let's, let's, let's do this. I'm, I'm willing to actually sacrifice a bit and you know, for everyone, that's gonna that's gonna look different. Um, I guess that's the, that's the way I've thought about it. Um, you pick up on the word sacrifice, and I think that's a really important thing. I mean, do you find that that's something that is not 
played out? It's not revered. It's not honoured in our culture today. I'm not sure. I mean, when I say sacrifice, maybe I'm. It's maybe just a real kind of um, athlete language. Um, I don't think so. I, I don't think so. I think it is something that I mean, you do use it in in sport, but we mm. used to use it throughout culture. You know, it was part of religion, religious traditions. It was part of philosophical mm. traditions that mm. you sacrificed something f- of your own for the greater good, and and that mm. then provided happiness at a personal level. Mm. And I, th- I think you've you've just struck on something which I think is really important is that as humans, I think what we're after is meaning, and yet we have been sucked into this um, lie that what we should be seeking is happiness. When exactly as you said, happiness is a byproduct. Yeah, and. It's 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 fleeting. It's not something that we should be we should be trying to orient our whole lives to defining because we're going to be disappointed, and we are. And you look at what where capitalism has got us and is 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 taking us. We really have to rethink the way that we are organizing our lives, our communities, our societies, our economies, um, and. You know, for for me, that in many ways starts with moral courage and and trying to take a stand, whatever, however small it is, but something that that feels right. Yeah, and I think because that's such an overwhelming influence, capitalism, the individualism, the neoliberalism, I think a lot of people are feeling that a line in the sand needs to be drawn. Is that is that something that you felt in that wild decision that you made? a line in the sand, i.e. Um, stepping back from football to focus on environmentalism, it, it basically s- said no. It said no to the capitalist cycle, the, the stuckness. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure if it was, if that was my thinking. I, I don't think it was a kind of a, you know, shoving it to that kind of part of our our culture was more a personal thing of these other things feel more meaningful. I want more time to pursue them. You know, for a long time I've, I've had these other interests outside of rugby and I've, I've kind of kept them, them rolling along and they've really provided me with a, a great outlet and, and, and interest to, to balance the, the um, professional sport kind of lifestyle and, and um, that, that bubble that you can get get sucked into. Um, but yeah, felt like, okay, this is the next part of the journey and, um, I don't know exactly what it looks like, but in making that the, like the sense of relief that you feel and, you know, almost this, this, um, energy, like it's, 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 it doesn't give you a lot more clarity and all of a sudden all your problems are gone. You still have to wake up in the morning and get on with it. Um, but I imagine it's probably in some ways similar to you deciding to um, shut down I Quit Sugar. Like Very. It's, 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 it's a crazy thing to do. Mm. Like you're a, mad, you're a mad person for taking, taking that decision. There's so many other things you could have done to keep making a buttload of money and, um, you know, being that person but... I don't know, yeah, for, for other reasons you decided that's not what you wanted to do. Yeah, and it was personal for me as well, but I I, I suppose I felt that, that drawing a line in the sand was what I needed to do to enable me to move on to that other meaningful stuff, that other stuff that was personally drawing me out into the world of climate um, change action. So, yeah, it's um, I think it is that, that it's very similar and I relate to taking that leap and the loneliness of, of taking that leap, but you've been speaking out a bit and it might not have been as conscious as you just want to be the person who speaks out on it. In fact, what I know of you is that being out there in the public eye and sticking your head up is just not your natural inclination. But I I sort of think about the way that you and Emma got married. You basically made a commitment that you were not going to have a ceremony until um, marriage equality laws um, came into play in Australia. And 
you have also attended a number of protests and put your body on the line by tying yourself to a to a tractor in a, a, a protest up at a coal mine and, you know, risked arrest and so on. I'm just kind of interested in why you feel that people are not speaking out as much. I mean, I think, you know, I, th- I think culturally there's there's a number of things in Australia. If you stick your head up, head up too high, it gets, you know, you get cut down. There's that real sort of tall poppy, don't rock the boat, just get on with it, mate, kind of um, attitude. So I'm not sure. I, I guess what I, what I do know from the things that I've decided are important and worth getting involved in and, and sort of making a stand on is that they've often been, been made personal um, and so, you know, with the marriage equality stuff, Emma and I had friends who we didn't we didn't feel like we wanted to join some, you know, marriage thing that a few of our friends, should they want to, legally couldn't. And so, I mean, it was it was no real cost to us. We kind of said, okay, well, un- until until the laws change, we'll we won't we won't won't be part of that. And when it comes came to getting arrested on a a coal mine, I guess there were a bunch of things that led up to that. I had you know, done all the usual stuff, signed petitions, been to the, the marches, um, you know, and, and now, like it's happening all over the place, they're building a, a coal mine in the middle of a forest, like in a critically endangered um, box gum woodland, and... Again, it was personal. I'd been involved in some community development work in Zimbabwe, and I remember one like really. It was it was so hot and and um, and humid, and we were kind of we'd been meeting with people all morning, and we were sitting under the the shade of this tree. And I think Emma was inside interviewing a teacher for um, a report we were putting together, and I was talking to this community development worker, who's one of the most charismatic people. I've met his name is Paul Kanye. He he sometimes refers to himself as Kanye East, um, <laughs> and he does a great job teaching sort of sustainable agriculture practices to to rural farmers. And we were kind of talking about challenges and 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 those sorts of things. And he kind of became really serious and looked me dead in the eye and just said, "Listen, the thing that I am most worried about for this community is climate change." And he said. We here in rural Zimbabwe can do nothing about it. It's rich countries like yours that can do something about it and must do something about it because we've got no money to deal with it. So, you know, you need to go back there and tell people to take it seriously. Fast forward, you know, four or five years and I'm up at um, Morse Creek and there just to kind of show solidarity with um protesters at this at this proposed coal mine and I meet Rick Laird who's a fifth generation farmer like salt of the earth uh, head of the local fire service um, yeah yeah just just a, a great guy never been arrested before um, and we we got chatting and then I guess having grown up on a farm his story his story really resonated with me and, and you know after spending an afternoon together he kind of said to me listen mate like if you're willing to get arrested I'll get arrested with you. And and it was, I guess, just really um, saying, okay, well, this is something I think is important. And at some point you've got to, you've got to make a stand. And if you look at the history of social change, this stuff doesn't just happen. Like it's, it's up to usually a very small percentage of population saying enough's enough. I'm willing to give up my civil liberties for something I really care and for future generations to try and to try and change things. And so I guess that's it. That's how I got there. I, I, I don't, I would love to see more people um, getting involved. And I think we have to, um, if things are going to change, but having said that, you know, over 300 people got arrested at, at the, the coal mine in, in Laird State Forest and it still went ahead. And, Hundreds of hectares have been bulldozed and uh, Gomorrah's sacred sites were destroyed and it continues. And, and you know, as an Australian, our farmers are getting screwed twice. One, we're building 
coal mines and all these gas projects in next next to their farms. So they're dealing with you know dust, noise pollution um, affecting groundwater, and then secondly, climate change <laughs> is seriously going to and already affected them. Like the average farm income has gone down 20% since the year 2000 due to climate change. Farmers kind of do it tough at the, the best of times for a lot of them. So uh, we're certainly making it more challenging for them. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You picked up on the farming thing, and it's really interesting. One of the other things you've been outspoken on from a personal passion point of view is, is um, meat farming. By now, I imagine you would have some kind of elevator pitch that you have to pull out at dinner parties when a vegan calls you, you know, to account for your meat eating. What's your take on it? What, what's your response um, as a climate activist who also eats meat? What do you say? <laughs> so, it's a thorny Here we topic, go. Let's uh, strap ourselves That in. requires <laughs> nuance and, and I guess, yeah, is, is very hard to convey in a, in a tweet um, where so much uh, seems to happen these days. I, I guess, as I see it, I have so much respect for people who go vegan for environmental reasons. And yeah, I was kind of heading down that that path, kind of went um, vego for a while and was, was sort of really looking into it more. Um, my concern is that it, it it doesn't address the way that we're farming. So industrial agriculture is very much warfare against nature. And, it, you know, I think it's no coincidence that it was sort of spawned from after World War II. It's like we've got all these chemicals. What do we do with them? Oh, we can use them in farming. And so that industrial mindset is so widespread and has done so much damage and we really have to address that and I really see regenerative agriculture as a way to begin to not only address some of the environmental damage that we've done like we're at the point where sustainable is no longer an option like we've degraded that much land that we have to actually find ways to regenerate it and heal it and Regenerative agriculture is very much farming in a way that your aim is to increase biodiversity. Your aim is to enrich and build soil and also produce nutrient-dense food. And it's really working with nature rather than against it. Again, this is a hugely contested space. The, the reason I really interested in and passionate about regenerative agriculture is I feel like it starts to address some of the shifts in mindset that are required from us to actually live on this planet that recognize that we're part of nature and nature is a cycle of life and death. And to think that we can somehow remove ourselves from that cycle we're, we're totally kidding, kidding ourselves and 
if we can actually find ways to close the loop in farming and use livestock to increase fertility. Um, when you say fertility, you mean fertility of the soil and of the, the, the cycle of biodiversity and so on, don't you? You don't just mean fertility of livestock. No, of the soil. I mean, our, our well-being is totally linked to the well-being of the, and the health of the soil. And so, I mean, yeah, we, we, we need to eat less meat, but I think we need to eat better meat. And I think that's the, that's the conversation that's missing is that not, not all meat is, is created equal. Um, if you look at taking livestock off of farms and putting them into feedlots and then trucking, you know, food from where we, from the farms to the feedlot, piping water, and it's an ecological disaster. Whereas if we can find ways to actually, you know, holistically manage livestock, produce nutrient-dense food, um, I think, you know, I, I think we all win and, and there's, there's really a bigger conversation here that needs to happen around our food system because... Uh, I mean, you know, you're all over this stuff with the work that you do. But, you know, as Aussies, we throw away 20% of our food, which is you know, over $5 billion worth. And if we're, if we're purely worried about emissions, if food waste as an emission was a country, it would be number three after the US and China. So this really needs to be part of this bigger conversation rather than just saying, listen, if we just stop all uh, animal um, agriculture and eat plants, we've sold it. We talk a lot about land degradation. One of the ways to actually begin to reverse that is by using livestock to mimic natural systems. So you think of, you know, really rich soils on the American Great Plains or the Serengeti with huge herds of animals, essentially following the rain, um, intensely graze somewhere, then don't come back for six months a year. Going back to that natural system would be great, but they're now towns, cities, um, fences all over the place. So that's unviable at the moment. Maybe in the future we'll, be, we'll decide to do that. But at the moment, the best tool we have is well-managed livestock. And when you actually manage them holistically, you draw carbon into the soil. You're building soil carbon, which is sequestering carbon out of the atmosphere. So it potentially is a huge carbon sink that we can begin to draw down a lot of the emissions that we've created uh, by burning fossil fuels. So I think regenerative agriculture has to be part of the future and one of one, an important solution to, to climate change. I'm so glad you made that point. It's the point that I think a lot of the debate uh, needs to pivot from. And look, just to pick up on it, it's actually more than 20% of food is wasted. It's it's quite a lot higher and most of it is at the consumer level. It's us throwing our meals out. Mm. And I always argue if you really want to be a conscious eater, um, just don't waste a single bit of food. That's mm-hmm. that's that's where the real difference can actually be made if anyone's confused about whether to go vegan, vegetarian mm-hmm. or, or uh, to continue eating meat. Mm-hmm. And what I would also add to that is, you know, it's come out recently that if we um, stopped wasting food and if, in fact, we cut our food waste by only 50%, there's enough food on the planet to feed everybody. And that's a startling statistic. But I want to move on to a subject um, that's close to James Hollis's heart, and I know it's close to yours, is, is men. Maybe we can pick it up from, you know, where men are at in the climate debate because they're, they're noticeably absent. Um, there's a lot of studies that have shown that it's perceived as kind of too feminine to carry a keep cup or to not, um, you know, to carry a, a reusable bag to the supermarket. Where do you think men are at and why aren't they getting engaged? Hmm. <laughs> Again, this is a pretty big topic. Um, I mean, from from my point of view, it's really not a surprise that in our it's a really patriarchal culture where the feminine is, 
you know, less than and is something to be dominated that men don't want to sort of stand up for the earth, which is, you know, the, like the the ultimate sort of embodiment of that feminine sort of regenerative being, that that, that sort of cycle of, of, of life and death. And, I'm, you know, I'm not sure how exactly we change that. I have really... F- found um some of bell hooks's work really helpful um she wrote a book i think it i think it's called the will to change yeah which you know really un- uh, growing up I, I saw feminism as this um you know this thing for for women who were clearly very passionate about it and, and uh, probably yelled a bit too much um <laughs> but i think the thing that the thing that I certainly missed was just how much patriarchy conditions boys to be disconnected from their feeling side. And I think we really see that in our culture where men um, find it very hard to connect to their feelings and to express how they actually, how they actually feel. And so I, I think it's, it's got a lot to do with that. Um, I think one of the other things in in Western cultures is that we're really disconnected from the places that we live, and you know it's it's really difficult to love somewhere that you don't really know, and you're not going to stand up for something that you don't love. So it's rekindling that relationship with the places that we actually live our homes um and i think one of the issues is that a lot of us don't actually live here we're living in twitter feeds and netflix shows and uh, and all those other things and there's there's nothing wrong with them in themselves but i think they provide a sort of a real distraction from actually engaging with the world around us and when we do that i think it really sparks something in us and you know it's really no surprise that Indigenous people are leading this sort of resistance to to what we're doing to the earth and what and saying, listen, this is this is madness. We we have to find ways to to live as if we're part of nature because we are. Yeah, <laughs> and we all know that. Um, so so can I ask, what are you doing personally to reconnect with your feelings and? Um, and your connection to nature and that sort of feminine entity. What are you doing at a personal level? Well, I think one of the great sort of intros to it is gardening. Like I know for me it's been such a great way to, I don't know, get a bit grounded for way of another word. Like you're getting your hands in the soil, you're uh, having to think about the seasons, the rain, the when do I water? How long do I water for? Is there frost coming? All these other things that otherwise we can kind of just live in our houses and and not ever think about these days. Um, And I think that helped um, awaken something in in me. Uh, I also feel incredibly lucky that as as a kid, my, my dad and my grandfather were really into birds and kind of passed on this fascination and love, um, of birds. I mean, as Australians, like we have some of the most incredible birds in the world all around us. And so, I don't know, it's just, it's just so interesting once you, once you take an interest and kind of get to uh, know a few of their names and learn more about them. And, and, you know, I think that's, that's all part of it. It's, it's like, it's the, it's the simple things we do every day um, as much as just, noticing and you know talking to people I think that's one of the things that in a country like Australia where we've been you know relatively um, very safe and lucky with COVID that that kind of almost slow down um, talking to people they've kind of commented how they've started to notice trees that they've never noticed before birds all these things that are you know we're just too busy for and I don't know, I think there's so much there's so much value in that that sort of thing. And 
you know, it's that old, it's that old saying: if you if you look at a tree and you see dollar bills, you're going to treat the the forest one way. If you look at a tree and um, you know you see a tree, you're going to treat it another way. But if you look at a tree and you see that particular tree, uh, it opens up a whole new world. And uh, I don't know. For me, it's been such a uh, such a gift to be able to. I don't know. Find find out more about this incredible world, and and I'm still, uh, yeah, we're all we're all still so new to it all. I mean, you look around your neighbourhood, and you know, I'd be lucky to be able to name ten trees, um, but I could probably identify a few hundred logos of of companies. <laughs> um, so there's a long way to go, I think. Men are often really good at attending to emergencies. You know, uh-huh. they used to sit around a campfire and chat away and, you know, share a few stories and then somebody would go, hey, there's a tiger out there or a deer, let's go and get it. You know, we, we need some food and they'd grab their spears and off they'd go and they'd track it and follow it and hunt it down for three days and not complain and come back and it'd be wonderful and they'd sit around the campfire and chat and talk shit again. But men can rise to an occasion super, super well. And it's why they're so great on playing fields and so on. The climate emergency is stark. It's right there. Now, it's not quite like a war, but it's, we know it's an emergency. It's really, really blatantly obvious now. How can we get men to respond to this kind of emergency? I mean, as, as humans, I think we've evolved to be really good at dealing with immediate threats. And you look at history and just you know, the resources and ingenuity that have been mobilised for wars, the race to get someone on the moon, you know, just extraordinary. But when it comes to something that is perceived as kind of this slow-moving threat and, you know, there's been billions of dollars spent on disinformation and propaganda against it and it's kind of, it's a little bit iffy, it's, I think, yeah, it is a lot harder to, okay, wh- what, can I, what can I do? These issues are so huge. What can I possibly do as an individual? Um, and that's the, I guess that's the, that's the, that's the question to, to be grappling with. Like, yeah, you and I can't change the world, but on a personal level, like, what, what are we doing? What are we doing in our personal lives? What are we involved with? How are we voting? What are you doing? So, you know, anyone listening out there who's who's aware it's an emergency and wants to do something straight away, what can we do? What are you doing at a personal sort of home-based level right now? Oh, good question. Um, we're pretty we're pretty lucky in the ACT. All of our energy is renewable. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're leading the way there. I mean, in Australia, 40% of our emissions are coming from electricity generation. So that's a huge one is actually talking to your provider, forcing government to, um, you know, shift to renewables. Um, yeah, a bit of gardening, ride, um, all those sorts of little things that I think, uh, I don't know, they really, I, I enjoy them more than I see them as a as a burden. Um, what other little practices? You ride a bike. Um, you grow some of your own vegetables. I know you've got chickens. Yeah, the chooks are great. Uh, I mean, all these all these things I think are imp- important on a, a personal level, and they they give you some sort of connection to the the big issues. But you know, we shouldn't kid ourselves. Like these problems have to be scaled by politics. And so, if we're if we're interested in seeing the the you know the great future that we know we have can have it's about pressuring politicians to be upping their game and what do you do on that front then like what do you do to agitate at a political level well emailing your local member you know attending um, whether it's your local extinction rebellion group or what whatever the local protest i think nonviolent direct, direct action is going to become like more and more crucial um, to actually forcing change in the, in the timescales we need. Um, and I guess the, the big thing that really interests me and, and I'm sort of putting my time into at the moment is trying to 
grapple with how do you actually build a new model of doing things. And that's very much what the, the Rangelands Restoration Trust is, is trying to do in Zimbabwe is how do you take a really pragmatic approach to deal with these big issues and build something that hasn't, you know, there's a lot of people working in this space, but everyone's, you know, trying to figure it out and, and uh, find a find a way that, that works for the people who live there. So, um I find it exciting. Like it's, it's, um, I don't know. I, I find it incredibly uh, meaningful and energizing. Um, having said that, I, I also have my moments. I think um, one of the um, things about engaging in this work and kind of allowing yourself to care. And I think it's maybe, maybe why we, we, we sort of distract and numb ourselves is that when we have to, when we actually engage, we realize just how much we've lost and, and the damage that we're doing. And, um, you know, I think psychologically as a species to know that you're destroying your home is that's a huge thing to carry. And, and, uh, me, this this may be controversial, but I, um, you know, I think so much of the the mental health issues we're we're seeing in the Western world uh, stem from this disconnect from from nature and actually structuring our lives as if we are human animals, which we are, <laughs> and you know, trying to believe that we can live apart from nature and not be part of its 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 rhythms and and. Um, you know, have to find a way to meet our needs within the the boundaries of um, of the earth and its systems. So, how do you, David, deal with the sadness that you see? Because you, once you lift the lid on all of this, you can't unsee it, and it can be incredibly, incredibly um, sad. Mm. I was I was talking to a reef scientist who works on the. She spent her life on the on the Great Barrier Reef. Uh, working there and, and yeah, talking about the the grief and how you actually deal with it. Um, Aldo Leopold, you know, back in the early 1900s, wrote that to have the price of an ecological education is to live in a lonely world of wounds, and I think that kind of speaks to what these reef scientists and people who are really on the front line of, of monitoring the changes that are taking place are dealing with is that it does take a toll. And I think um, having, well, so for me, having daily practices of um, gratitude and journaling um, and meditation are something that I don't know, I I would hate to try and do without. Um, And also, yeah, Allowing yourself every now and then just to feel, yeah, <laughs> to feel the feel sad and to really grieve because, um, I mean, things. Uh, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of hopeful stories out there, but generally things aren't aren't good. So, um, you know, I think when we allow ourselves to to feel and not not try and um, bottle it up too much. And are actually involved in some way in trying to change things. I think it it's it it can be it can actually be energizing. Yeah, if that makes sense. It makes perfect sense because I I feel much the same way, and um, our friendship has been a little bit based around recognizing that, and I know that you recognize that in mm. me definitely. Mm. And I mean, I think one of the one of the things we are facing as a society is to actually like really look in the mirror and say, okay, like this way of life has brought us so many benefits, but in so many ways, like we've really stuffed up. <laughs> it's it's not working. We know it can't continue. Something has to change. 
And that's a hard thing to do because it's essentially saying, you know, that what we were doing in many ways was wrong. What our parents did was wrong. And I think that that in itself takes courage to say, okay, hang on, like this, this isn't working. I don't know how we get out of here, but we've got a lot of smart people who are have spent their lives working on this. So, okay, let's, let's actually, let's have a crack. Um, and the tragedy in Australia is that we have, um, you know, we, we, we continue to vote for people who are just doubling down on the same old shit, expecting, maybe not even expecting a different result, but just not, not seeming to care. So, um, Mm. yeah, there's certainly a lot we, we could be doing. Um, David, I almost feel that that's quite a good note to finish on um, and I'll just pick up on something you alluded to there, that there's sadness and there's loneliness and I know that you've been quoted as saying you're actually getting quite comfortable being weird and different, which is part of that adult journey, you know. But can I ask, um, you you mentioned the word freedom and um, the, 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 the idea that we got things wrong but what that does is open up the possibility of doing things quite differently. In fact, we will have to do things quite differently. Has this space that you've moved into, this climate space that you've dedicated yourself to, has that given you a sense of freedom? <laughs> you know, I think one of our big failures is a, is a failure of imagination and, you know, I think it's Rebecca Solnit who points out that as humans, we're far better at imagining the end of the world than like the slow sideways path in a world without end. And that's, that's where we are. Like, you know, it's, it's so easy to just think, oh, doom and gloom, there's nothing I can do, but things can be different and they have to be different. And, and yeah, I mean, what's, what's more exciting than being part of, helping shape the future and hopefully helping create a future that, um, you know, we may not get to enjoy, but future generations and, you know, so many of the other species on the planet will, um, I don't know, hopefully, hopefully benefit from. It's hard for me to sum up what I got from hearing how and why Dave made his wild decision except I am so glad he did and I'm so glad I have people like him in my life to talk this kind of stuff with. So I actually asked Lindsay, the producer, who nodded her head all the way through our interview, to collate what she got from the interview. This is what she told me. He left me with a lot to keep thinking about, like when his friend Kanye East in Zimbabwe Um, told him, we can't do this because we don't have the money and what we actually need is for you to do it for us. And, Lindsay, I think I've got this right. This left you feeling actually fired up as as a Westerner to, to do something because we are the ones that have the power to do it and we're the only ones that can do this change. She enjoyed learning about reading widely and letting yourself go down rabbit holes, swap your car for a bike, that's a good one, but also put pressure on your local politicians to take real action on climate change. I might actually put some notes in the show notes so that um, anyone who's wanting to get involved at that level, it might help you out. Let yourself be sad and grieve, but don't keep your sadness bottled up. Lindsay added to this that she found the idea of Dave doing a gratitude practice and journaling each day really inspiring and that she herself still had so much to be grateful for while while the planet is still intact and we can enjoy sunrises and the ocean and so on um, and that it's important to go through that so that we can we can keep doing the work to fight for it
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.